again. If you will uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 123. We're being discipled by the Psalms of Ascent. It's this collection from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 um, that really has become a metaphor for the Christian life of going on this journey, following Jesus up to the New Jerusalem, uh, to, to where God dwells. Of course, in the storyline of the Bible is that Jerusalem is going to then come down to us uh, at the end of all things, because that's the story of the Bible. It's God dwelling with us, wanting to dwell with his people. But in Psalm 123 this morning, we're going to be given a, an identity, uh, a posture, if you will, to deal with rejection. Um, part of this journey is hard, and so that's what this psalm is going to equip us to deal with. So let's read it and pray, and, and meditate on this together. This is the word of our God from Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. His word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it's to you uh, that we ask for help. Uh, this morning, we ask for mercy. We ask that you would use this psalm to form us uh, into a people who are patiently waiting for you to work, uh, who are confident in your grace, um, who are able to lean on you when the world rejects us. And Jesus told us that would happen, uh, that the world will hate us because they hated him. And so for that reality to sink in, we need your spirit to be at work in our hearts, in our minds, uh, in our church, that we might be bold, uh, be courageous, uh, be willing to just bear with the contempt and scorn of our culture, because Jesus is worth it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a, a great line at the end of this definitely disturbing film. Uh, called The Talented Mr. Ripley, where this young man, played by Matt Damon, says with regret, I always thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. Right? And this is after he has spent his, this whole film pretending to be somebody he's not, because if you know the story, he grew up poor, and he just hated the scorn of the proud, uh, the ridicule of those who are wealthy and comfortable. Um, and so what he did is he, he found a crowd from grad, of graduated from Princeton, right, the Ivy League elite, and he just charmed his way into their, their friendship. He lied. He, he did everything he could to get into the inner ring to feel welcome. And so in the story, the lies, the lust, the murder, the violence, all that, all that happens in this Oscar-winning film it's because one poor young man couldn't handle contempt. He couldn't deal with rejection. He couldn't deal with that look 
that we have all gotten at some point that says, oh, you're, you're weird, you're different, uh, you're not like us, right? And so for Mr. Ripley being called a third-rate mooch because his clothes look poor incites violence. And so it's after all of this trouble that he goes through, that's when he says, I thought it would be better to be a fake somebody rather than a real nobody. Right, see, the, the psalm here in Psalm 123 is going to help us avoid that temptation <laughs> uh, to, to try and be a fake somebody and to be content to be a real, not nobody, but a real person uh, who God made you because you're content with God's attention, with his affection, with his eyes. Uh, this, is, this is helping us. It's going to go to work on our fear of being an outsider because that's, that's what we talked about. Jesus in, in the Gospel of John is that t- tells his disciples, you will be hated for my name's sake. The world has hated me, therefore they will hate you. And so we have, this is a help us right now deal with rejection, but this is also a preparatory thing as you go out into the world and claim out loud that I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Yeah, you're going to get scorned. You're going to get contempt. We get, lo- we get overlooked. And so how do we do that so we're formed into a people who are real, who avoid Mr. Ripley's regret and pain and hurt that he causes? And so... The psalm here uh, teaches us how to look, how to wait, and what to expect. And so first, how do we look? We have to look to the heavens, and that's in verse 1. All right, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. The beautiful thing about these psalms is uh, they're short and simple, but really difficult to live out in practice in every day. Because right, the first thing the psalmist is doing is saying, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of trouble, is don't stare at the trouble. Lift up your eyes and look up to the heavens. Uh, look, look at the throne of the one who created the heavens. Right? It's the same prayer Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father, where does he dwell? Who art in heaven? Our Father who is enthroned in the heavens. Uh, it's, this part of the psalm is, is trying to interject some sanity <laughs> uh, to say that, hey, no matter the scorn, no matter the ridicule, no matter the pain you feel from being rejected, there is someone, you can take your complaint straight up to the manager, uh, straight up to the master, right? Go, go all the way up to the top, to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Right. And to really look, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but maybe, did you see the, the new images that the NASA released this past week? I mean, they're breathtaking images of this unseen part of the universe taken from the James Webb telescope. Uh, you can Google it when you get home. Basically, the astronomers say they, they, they're looking at one size of a grain speck filled part of the sky, <laughs> Right? Picture one grain of sand held at arm's length out there, gazillion miles away. And it's just this majestically beautiful images. You can just see how big the cosmos is and how small we are. And all of that, of 
course, the scriptures tell us, was created by the one enthroned in the heavens, by the very word of his power. And so the psalmist says, look to the God who created that. Uh, To lift up our eyes, to see his gaze paying attention to us when the world looks away from us. Because the only eyes that matter are the one who dwells in heaven. And then how do we look? That's verse 2. It says, Behold, as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. And so it uses a, a metaphor here, right? We're servants who are faithfully standing in the corner uh, waiting for God, our master, <laughs> uh, to do something. But notice how the, the language, right? It's until he does something. This isn't a quick glance. This isn't a, a passing, passing by look. This is a long, steady, reflective gaze that is meditating on the character of the one who dwells on his, up in the heavens, right? Let's take a long look. Keep your eyes focused in the, in the midst of the rejection. Wait till he has mercy, right? And that's, that's really the, the challenge, right? Take a long look. Slow down. Um, take a time out. Focus your attention, right? If you've one of the interesting things, I took a, a film class in college, is why I have all these random film trivia sermon illustrations. Um, but one of the ways that just visual communication has changed over the last hundred years is how much stuff happens in one minute of a video. Right? In, the, in, the old, in the old films, it'd be one long stretch of not very much action, <laughs> and our kids complain, right? But now, if you watch, even just compare the kid shows, right? There's just so much stuff flashing, flashing, flashing to the point where our, our modern sense of a, a, an ability to focus is less than the attention span of, and memory of a goldfish, right? It's like seconds, right? So our eyes have been trained as a, through, through media, through television, through our phones um, to just not pay attention to anything for very long. It's a battle. But what the psalmist is saying, hey, we are servants and we are called to longingly, lovingly look to our Lord and wait for him to show mercy. I mean, there's some debate that this is what scholars do as to what exactly these servants are looking for. Uh, Some argue that they're actively looking at their master because servants are terrified of their master, right? If you've ever had an overbearing boss and you're terrified of the rod of discipline that may come your way, um, you have your eye on the master because you don't want his attention. <laughs> that doesn't really fit the, the context. Um, but may, maybe these are servants who are just waiting to be told what to do, right? Just, we're servants, he's the Lord. Have you seen Downton Abbey, right? Yes, my Lord. <laughs> the deep British voice. No, I think what makes the best sense, these are servants who recognize the character of the God who dwells on high, that they have a kind master who cannot bear to see his people suffer. And so they're waiting for mercy. 
We'll talk about what that means. But it makes the best sense of what this, uh, this uh, metaphor is saying. We are servants anticipating health. Isn't that interesting? Right? Because normally servants are the ones who wait to serve their master. And this is flipping it around saying we're waiting for our Lord and our God to serve us. And so where, where are your eyes looking? When you are rejected, when you're feeling that pain of being overlooked. I once heard a, an illustration about a teenage girl who had been coming to church, and it was just this massively, she had this massive moving experience where she could feel on Sunday, God loves me. Right? Jesus died for me. I am just as loved by God as Jesus is loved. The maker of heaven and earth pays attention to me. And, of course, during the week, the eyes of her heart were, were not lifted up high. Like, most, like lots of teenage girls, she was looking to get attention from the boys. And there was a particular Sunday where she had been overlooked, been rejected, because she had wanted this particular guy to like her. And, and so she goes to the pastor and says, Pastor, I believe God loves me, but I, I just can't feel it right now. Why, why does God's love... God's mercy not make a difference when it comes to the way I relate to these boys. And here's, here's what the pastor said. He says, right now, God is on audio, but your friends are on video. And so which one are you likely to pay much more attention to? Right? We're visual. We, we, we look with our eyes. And what we see, that's what we focus on. That's what we pursue. Right? And of course, the problem is, if you've ever been rejected, when someone belittles you, pours contempt on you, mocks your clothing, uh, if you're a Christian, right, they're saying you're weird because you actually care about a particular kind of morality. Right? Those are the conversations that get played in, on video replay over and over and over again in our heads rather than lifting up our eyes, looking like servants look to their master, and asking for help to say, Lord, meet me here in my pain. Right. And so the psalmist is saying, look, lift up our eyes. Look to heaven for help. And then the second point here, we're called to wait. Um, Wait for mercy, right? That's, that's verse, the end of verse 2. Wait until he has mercy upon us. Um, mercy is the theme of this short little psalm. I mean, three times it says mercy. We're going to wait for mercy, and then it cries out for mercy twice. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases, um, we're watching and waiting. Lord, we're holding our breath, awaiting your word of mercy. We're just sitting here. God, what are you going to do? Right, and so this is the, the motivation, the reason we believe God pays attention to us, that we fully expect God to intervene. It's, it's the reality that he is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. He, he doesn't use power the way uh, these other gods use power. He uses power to serve. That's the story of the Bible from page one, that the Lord the maker of heaven and earth, and who does he build this earth for to dwell with? Humans. And all that goodness, truth, and beauty in Genesis 1 and 2 is for his glory 
and our good. Right? He uses his kindness, his mercy, even at the beginning to serve. Right? So what's really interesting, if, if Psalm 121, this was a couple weeks ago, is meditating on God's commitment to guard and keep his people, right? Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Psalm 123 is taking the other part of the benediction, may the Lord be gracious to you. Um, it's that exact same Hebrew word. May the Lord have mercy. May he be gracious to you. May you find his favor. May he, you get his attention. Right? And so this is why we wait. Uh, this is why Christians have cried out for help in the midst of really deeply painful rejections, um, some to the point of physical harm. And they say, Lord, I am waiting on you and I trust you. You are good even though my life stinks right now because of his grace. And so the question is, do, do you, when you lift your eyes to the heavens, do you see the Lord like that, as merciful and gracious? And I'm not just talking about uh, the intellectual category, because um, we're good Bible theologians here. But when that intersection of your suffering and your theology come together, do you really believe the Lord sees hears and is waiting desiring to show you mercy to the point to where you're willing to wait on his timetable because he is king because he is the master to to really believe what isaiah said in 30 18 the lord waits to be gracious to you therefore he exalts to himself to show mercy to you blessed are all those who wait for him we could be more concrete Um, part of what this psalm is getting at is the one who dwells in heaven actually cares what happens to his people here on earth that's what that's the idea of mercy here that he's the psalmist is crying out in anticipation that his master cares about our rejections about being treated as nobodies as being Uh, mocked, ridiculed. Lord, show mercy. Don't just stay in the heavens. Come down here and do something. That's that's the heart of the prayer. And the the pain in verses 3 and 4, of course, is uh, it says our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. It's it's this word picture of, um, right, you're, you're an overflowing cup, and instead of your cup being full of blessings, it's full of pain. And more keeps coming, right? It's like you're trying to drink from a fire hose of contempt. Our souls had more than enough. Have mercy. And what's interesting is how does this person pray uh, and teach us to pray when people are being incredibly unkind? And painfully so. He doesn't say, Lord, um, you've called down fire from heaven in the past, right? Obliterate them. <laughs> he's, not, he's not calling out for vengeance on his enemies. There are other psalms that do that, for sure. Um, he's not saying just take it away. Just, it's just a generic, to us, it's a generic word, Lord, have mercy. And that is the cry of a person who knows 
they have no power to change whatsoever what is happening. Lord, have mercy. All kinds of examples of this in the New Testament. Think of the blind man. Son of David, have mercy on me. What options does he have other than Jesus? You can think of the grieving father who brings his son to Jesus because he's having demon-induced seizures. Lord, have mercy. Uh, You can think of the the lady, the, the Canaanite woman. His desperate mother is bringing her oppressed, suffering child to Jesus, and she has to argue with Jesus to get his mercy. Uh, She enters into this dialogue with Jesus, and she says, Jesus, have mercy on me. (laughs) All the way through the scriptures, and uh, what this this psalm is tapping into is what we're called to do when life stinks as degraded and dehumanized people. Cry out for help to the divine. Ask for deliverance. Mercy just covers all of that, (laughs) right? Lord, act as you are. Be merciful. Help me. I can't handle any more suffering. I've had enough. Uh, I have an abundance of misery. You have an abundance of mercy. Help me. Right? And what's really helpful is so often when you're in those deep, painful human experiences, it's hard to be articulate with our prayers because it just hurts. All you have to do is say, have mercy on us. That is a deep biblical prayer. You're asking God to intervene and do something he delights in doing. This is the prayer of God's suffering servants. Help me. And and the beauty of this is you pray for mercy, right? You're you're putting the ball in God's court. (laughs) It's um, It's not us down here saying, Lord... Uh, we're, we've been really good. Aren't you glad you have me on your team? You should really intervene and fix this. That's the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18. Right? Nor are we just naming it and claiming it and demanding God give us exactly what we want. We're, we're not telling him what to do. We're not using prayer as a vending machine. Right? I mean, Praying for mercy means you're not going to let God answer you simply because you've checked all your quiet time boxes. Lord, I've read the Bible this much this week. I've, right, I've, I've talked to you really, I've talked to you a lot this week. You owe me, right? You're praying for mercy. You're praying for grace. Right, no, this is, mercy is 100% dependent on God's willingness to help even moral failures. That's his joy. That's his desire. That's the story of the Bible, Right? That's why Thomas Goodwin, the old Puritan pastor, says about the Lord, this is who he is. He is the spring of all mercy. It's natural to him. Uh, It's his nature and disposition because when he shows mercy, he does it with his whole heart. That's that's what you see over and over again. Um, Judgment is his strange work. And so... That psalm is saying, hey, if the world hates you, look at the one who loves you. Look at the one who is willing to have mercy, who desires to have mercy. Right? And so we look. You have to wait because he's going to answer in his timetable. Uh, And then we expect mercy. And that's, that's the challenge here. 
right? To look, wait, and expect, right? If you're in a covenant relationship, as the Psalms assume, with the Lord as your master, and we are his people, we can wait because we know he will show mercy. He's obligated himself to, in a covenant, through his promises, through his word. And so, if you read the psalm, it just ends, right? It's just an emotional plea for help. Uh, there's no engagement, there's no arguing with those who cause the pain. There's not even a, a self-defense list here of we're innocent, we don't deserve this stuff. No, it's just, Lord, I fully expect you to do something. Have mercy on me. One of the great examples from the Old Testament of how this worked out uh, comes from Nehemiah. I honestly think in six, seven years of ministry, I don't think I've ever talked about Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah is uh, someone who is sent back to, to rebuild Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. Right? Uh, he's, he's leading the effort to restore the city that has been destroyed and rebuild the temple. He's, he's partners with Ezra. Right? And so what, one of the things they face as they go about being faithful to what the Lord has called them to do is all kinds of rejection, threats, and suffering. Right? So Nehemiah 2, 19 says this, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard of their plans to rebuild Jerusalem, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king, the king of Babylon? And then Nehemiah replied to them, he said, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim to this city. Nehemiah's, you hear his default. You reject me, but the Lord of heaven is on my side. It gets repeated again in, verse, in chapter 4. When Sanballat hears they're building the wall, he gets angry. He's greatly enraged. He jeers at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the whole army of Samaria, right, north of Israel, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Are they going to sacrifice are they going to finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite joined in and says, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up, the fox is going to break down their wall. Right? You can hear the mocking. Nehemiah's prayer, immediately after they get, go through all that trash talk, here it is, ready? Here, O oh God, we are treated with contempt. We are despised. It's same language as Psalm 123. Question is, did it stop them? Right? That's the story of Nehemiah. The threats of violence, right? It, it got worse before it got better. They're crying out for mercy, but they had to keep building the wall, keep doing what God called them to do, despite the rejection, despite the pain. Which then helps us figure out how to use Psalm 123, doesn't it? Why are God's people hated? Why are Christians often treated as nobodies? And, and the story of the Bible is part of participating in the work of saying God's house is what I'm working on. 
um, participating in God's family. That's last week's sermon. Um, being a part of building up the city of Jerusalem to be a city of refuge for all kinds of different tribes, tongues, and nations because of Jesus' sake. Um, that's going to evoke hostility. When you say that the only way to get into the presence of God is in a particular place, people are going to reject that idea. Right? Expect contempt. Expect to be overlooked. Expect to, people say, why are you spending all your time at church? Surely there's better things to do to entertain yourself. Why would you get up on a Sunday morning when you could sleep in? On a, when the sun's out, you could be at a lake. Right? The church should expect hostility. And Jesus makes that even clearer, the better Nehemiah. Right? Because not only does Jesus make God's mercy visible, he also models how to bear contempt, ridicule, the proud. Right? Jesus said it was going to happen. You can read Mark. Right? Over and over again, three times, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. Jesus says, I know I am going to be rejected. This is going to hurt. And after three days, rise again. He's going to have to wait for God's help. He said it plainly. That's Mark 8. Mark 10, he says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Perhaps more succinctly, it's the Gospel of John. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. No one in the world welcomed Jesus as he deserved. A man of sorrows knows the pain of rejection. But like Nehemiah, Jesus didn't stop. He walked towards the rejection, trusting God's mercy, God's help. Right? And as you read the gospel accounts, that's what Jesus went through, the, the scorn of those who are at ease. Is there any more graphic picture of those who are comfortable not hanging from a cross saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, get yourself down? Right. Why did Jesus go through that? Why did he face the rejection of the world and ultimately on the cross the rejection of his Father in heaven? Because he is the Lord of heaven who answered this prayer, who came down to earth to give us mercy, to give us forgiveness, uh, to give us a full acceptance with the King, our God, our Maker. Um, as one person put it, Jesus came to purchase for us a comfort and consolation that no human scorning or rejection could ever threaten because you are God's child. And if you are God's child, you have his love, his attention, his affection. The eyes of heaven are on you on earth. Right? And so the New Testament amps it up. Right? Psalm 123 is we're like servants crying out to our kind master, expecting him to serve us. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us in the gospel. The New Testament adds to that. It doesn't just say, oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. It says, my father our Father who art in heaven. 
And so now we cry out for mercy as beloved children, fully expecting our God to hear. Right? Martin Luther, the German monk, was so good at talking, meditating on this, when he, teaching people to pray our Father. He says, the lips say nothing, but the heart says something like this. This is how you process rejection. Although I am impressed with anguish and fear on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, you can feel the pain. The heart also says, Lord, I am still your child and you are my father. And for Christ's sake, I am loved because of the beloved. And he goes on to say, in serious temptations, when your conscience is wrestling with the condemnation, the judgment of God, it, your soul is going to be tempted, inclined, not to call God Father, but to tr see him as if he's angry, cruel, and unjust, a terrifying judge. And that crying that Satan is stirring up is, feels intense. It feels strong because it's going to feel like God has forsaken us and will throw us away. But that's not the groaning of those who cry out, Abba, Father. Now is the time to turn your eyes away from the law, from your own conscience, and lay hold of the faith, lay hold by faith on the promise, the word of grace, the word of mercy, so that your conscience, so your heart can then say, although the law accuses me and sin and death terrify me, you, O God, promise grace, righteousness, and everlasting life through Jesus. And so you can groan, you can cry out, Abba, Father, <laughs> and expect to be heard because that's what Jesus came to do, that we would be adopted holy and blameless, loved as Jesus is loved. Essentially what this psalm is giving us is, a, is an identity that is thick enough, strong enough to deal with rejection and scorn, which cannot be avoided in this life. And when you have that, That'll give you the freedom and maybe even the contentment to be a real nobody. <laughs> because you have your Father in Heaven's attention. You have His mercy. You have His ever-watchful eye, His never-ending grace. Um, the one who watches your coming and going from this time forth and forevermore. And essentially what rejection will become doesn't take away the pain, right? We, we, that was our... Uh, call to worship this morning. We're, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're crushed. This hurts. But we're not falling apart, right? Because we, we know the Lord is with us, right? So we're called to, to look to heaven, to wait for his mercy, and we can expect it because Jesus rose from the dead. And as God intervened in Christ, for Christ, he promises to help us bear the rejection of the world. And so I'll end with this quote by Michael Wilcock, a commentator. He says, "Where, whenever real power and real hatred are pitched up against God's righteous cause, the people of God know what to do. They keep patiently working at the task before them. But even more important, they look constantly to the prayer, in prayer to the one who alone, right, God, is pledged to uphold the right and able to frustrate the wrong. And then they wait for him to act. <laughs> Say, Lord, have mercy on us. Help. Let's pray. 
Our Father and our God, in this short psalm, you've shown us yet again that you hear us, uh, you see us. And so I pray for all of us who have at some point or will bear the pain of rejection, um, just by virtue of being human and because sin is in the world, but also for Christ's sake. Lord, I pray the gospel would meet our broken heart, uh, bind us up, uh, heal us, that you would draw near, that we really would find you to be our ever-present help in times of need because we've turned and looked to you and asked for mercy. We, th we thank you for Jesus who makes that clear that you have heard our cries and come down. Teach us to cry out, Abba, Father, when, when life hurts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.